Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism, the dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, indeed, and welcome to another edition of Diffusion, your weekly science show. We've got a, a just a jam-packed show this week, and we've got a studio packed full of people as well. My name's Chris Stewart, and in the studio with me, we've got Emily. Hi. We've got Jack. Hi. Jack's along for the first time tonight. Make him welcome. Uh, we've got Celine. G'day. And Patrick, who's also joining us for the second time. So we're going to uh, have a bit of stuff tonight about carbon trading and about asbestos, naturally occurring asbestos. But before we get to all of that juicy stuff, we're going to kick off, as we always do, with the weekly science news. And this science news is brought to you by pretty much everyone. So in the science news this week, I'll kick it off. There's a, a bit of problem for NASA this week. They've just discovered that, you know, uh, George Bush decided that we're going to go back to the moon and then we're going to go onto Mars. If we go back to the moon, there might be a bit of a problem with some static electricity. And this is related to, you know, when you scuff your feet on a, on a carpet floor and then you wander across, open a door or touch someone and you get that little zap. Well, multiply that by, you know, many times up there on the moon and you've got a, yourself a bit of a problem. And apparently that's a real risk up there. There are three problems with static electricity on the moon. And the static is, is uh, in the moon dust itself. The first problem is that it tends to be very clingy. If you've ever noticed that static tends to stick your laundry together when you get it out of the, uh, out of the, the clothes dryer. Same problem with moon dust, apparently. And this was a problem on the Apollo missions. The moon dust got everywhere because it was clinging to everything. It clogged up the vacuum cleaner in the Apollo spacecraft. Would you believe it? So the moon dust sticking is a bit of a problem. But worse than that, the static in the moon dust is all going to be the same type of charge. And you may, have, may remember from your high school science classes that like charges repel each other and so you've got all this dust that's basically pushing away from each other if it gets you know blown up in the air by say a, a lander coming down then you can create massive dust storms which could be a bit of a problem for lunar exploration but bigger problem than all of that is that you can actually build up some pretty big charges with this moon dust several thousand volts and that's enough to short out some sensitive electronic equipment. So this has got some of the NASA bods a little bit worried. This all came out of a study done at the U University of California in Berkeley. Of course, until they get up there and actually try out some of these ideas, they're not going to know whether or not this is really a problem that's going to get in the way of moon exploration. But it's certainly giving the NASA bods something to think about. So next story in the, uh, the science news this week. Emily, you've got something about incest perhaps not being as bad as we thought. Yes, right back down here on Earth, actually. For one group of American fish, incest is not just the choice of a shunned minority. It is the preferable way of life if you want to have healthy kids and a happy family. Despite the common conception, no pun, that incest comes hand in hand with mutation, these fish choose individuals they're closely related to so that their offspring carry a greater percentage of their genetic material. Scientist Timo Thunken and his team at the University of Bonn in Germany found that both inbred and outbred fish of a certain species had the same growth and survival rates. However, males who shacked up with their sisters spent more time guarding and investing in their young. It seems that although inbreeding is still considered largely deleterious, or bad if you will, if it occurs for long enough, any initial harmful mutations can eventually be bred out. 
Well, that's food for thought. It's good to know that if the availability of mates takes a significant dive in numbers, at least we can turn to our nearest and dearest for some sweet, sweet loving. I don't want to think about that. That's it's a bit just, of a foul thought, isn't it? <laughs> that's just given me the shivers. We might move right along. We've got a couple of stories about climate change. Jack, over to you. Yeah, that's it. Um, the, the sexual habits of fish may not matter, actually, because uh, climate change might kill all of them. A stronger link to climate change and human activities has been demonstrated by the IPCC's fourth assessment report. Increased rates of snow and ice melting and rising sea levels have been proven to be linked to human activities, leading to increased levels of greenhouse gas emissions. This increase is the result of combustion of fossil fuels, agriculture and land use change. Dr Penny Wetton, a lead author of the IPCC's report, claims that climate change has a 90% chance of being linked to human activities. The report used increases in scientific understanding into climate change and a better data set to delve further into the problem. Predicted temperature increases of between 1 and 6.3 degrees Celsius on the land surface by the end of the 21st century are to be expected, and 0.2 degrees over the next 20 years. Precipitation will increase in higher latitudes and decrease in lower subtropical areas, which is unfortunate for us Australians. Sea level will rise by between 19 and 58 centimetres by 2100. That's a lot. This is conservative based on uncertain uncertainties surrounding ice sheet stability and extreme rainfall events. Heat waves and extreme rainfall events are expected to become more frequent as is the incidence of drought. Whilst tropical cyclones will decrease in number but increase in severity, also causing an increase in severe banana prices. Well, that's, that's all very positive and exciting climate change news. Uh, Patrick, you're talking about carbon dioxide from cars, emissions from cars. Mm -hmm. For this story, we're going right across to Europe. Apparently, the European Commission has agreed on a proposal to reduce carbon dioxide emissions for new cars and vans sold in the European Union. By 2012, new cars must, on average, produce no more than 120 grams per kilometre of carbon dioxide. That's quite a contrast to current levels which are at 163 grams per kilometre. Cars and vans are currently responsible for 12% of EU total CO2 emissions. So that's bringing us down by about a third. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. But as you can guess, it comes at a cost. Um, Renault have estimated that the proposals will cost car makers an extra €3,000 per vehicle. That's $5,000. Um, the EC have not discussed penalties for manufacturers who fail to meet targets, which is a surprise. Climate change is always going to come at a cost. We're going to have a bit of a report on climate change a bit later on, um, but to finish off the news, Celine, you've got uh, some very, very simple stuff in physics about something to do with light and matter. Certainly simple when it comes to magic. All you magicians out there listen closely. The latest trick up a scientist's sleeve is not a vanishing pink rabbit. Instead, it's a vanishing beam of light. Scientists at Cambridge Uni in Massachusetts have actually made light vanish into a gas then pump the gas into a new container and make it reappear in a completely different space. The ma their magic wand is actually the qu um, quantum mechanics in action because when you cool gas particles they kind of settle into a really neat pattern. It's a bit like a crowd at a football game where 
everyone watching the game is exhibiting kind of a random pattern, but when they're cooled, the Mexican wave reappears and everyone's in formation. Unless you're at a cricket game in Australia, in which case it's not allowed anymore. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so in this state, uh, according to the Adams and not in a cricket game, this um, Bose-Einstein condensate, it's called, light can actually be cooled so much so that it will travel at 24 kilometres per hour. So that means a pulse lasting less than a millionth of a second, which normally travels about one kilometre in that time, it covers only about 20 micrometres. So this pulse will actually fit comfortably in a, inside a cloud of sodium gas. So hang on, light which normally travels at 300,000 kilometres an hour. That's right, Chris. It slows down to 24 kilometres per hour. Blimey. Those crazy physicists. When the light beam is turned off, the pulse disappears and the matter copy remains. A second cloud absorbs the light's momentum and a control beam sparks these atoms to spread their message through the whole new cloud. The original light beam is re-radiated, but it only actually has about one-fifteenth of the energy. So this trick is not only set out to revolutionise the magician's underworld, but it may also be used for manipulating information in quantum computers and storing information in light beams. And you are listening to the Diffusion Science Show across Australia thanks to the Community Broadcasting Network. Well... Carbon trading's been in the news a bit lately, particularly down here in Australia with our Prime Minister having his task force reporting back over the last week, telling us what we're all up for over the next couple of decades. But just what is this carbon trading business? How do you get your carbon and who do you give it to when you want to trade it? Patrick Ruby's up next with an explanation of what this is all about. Patrick. Thanks, Chris. Global warming is now one of the most talked about topics in politics, media and general conversation. Many of us who have seen Al Gore's documentary An Inconvenient Truth may have left our cinema seats feeling depressed and disillusioned, but also hopefully determined to help prevent the gloomy prediction of a warmer world. Recently, the ideas of carbon trading have been talked about as a practical solution to force us to control and reduce our carbon dioxide emissions. This report examines the science of carbon trading. Carbon, just like any other element in nature, cannot be destroyed. It cycles between being released into our atmosphere, mainly as carbon dioxide, and being taken out of our atmosphere and held in carbon sinks or sources. We need a certain amount of carbon dioxide, along with other greenhouse gases such as water, vapour and methane, in our atmosphere to help keep the Earth warm enough for life. The sun radiates energy to Earth, and greenhouse gases trap some of this energy in our atmosphere, preventing it from radiating back into space. This is the greenhouse effect, and without it, the Earth's surface would be 34 degrees Celsius cooler. Carbon is taken out of our atmosphere by marine plankton and trees when they use it in photosynthesis. This takes a relatively short time, but isn't a huge sink for carbon. Carbon is also taken out of our atmosphere through the formation of rocks and fossil fuels, such as coal, gas and oil. This takes a much longer time to occur, millions of years, but it is a huge sink for carbon. Carbon is put back into our atmosphere by volcanic eruptions, animals as they respire, and microorganisms when organic material is decomposed. 
but also to a great extent by clearing and burning forests and burning fossil fuels. As fossil fuels contain higher amounts of carbon, burning them releases larger amounts of carbon dioxide. Thus the greenhouse effect increases and so does the potential for polar ice caps to melt and sea levels to rise. Carbon trading is an effort to balance emissions of carbon dioxide from industries that produce it and form part of a solution to global warming. It relies on a business or company having a quota or cap on carbon dioxide emissions. If it is under that quota, it is given carbon credits, and businesses that go over their quotas can buy these carbon credits from the businesses that are under their quotas in order that they themselves can meet the quota. The New South Wales Department of Primary Industries has been offering advice to farmers to rent out their land as carbon pools as a way of getting involved in this market. The land will be planted with trees and this will provide a certain amount of carbon credits to a company that will rent the land in order to offset their own emissions or to sell their carbon credits to other companies that have exceeded their quotas. Through a carbon trading system, theoretically carbon dioxide emissions are stabilised. Many industries around the world are starting to embrace this carbon trading system, but it does pose some difficult questions. What will its effect be on industry and jobs? Will companies strive to meet their quotas and what will the consequences be if they don't? Would this system be useful in reducing carbon dioxide emissions as well as stabilising them? Whatever the answers, and they are still being hotly debated, carbon trading can only be part of the solution. Global warming does not seem to be a problem that can be satisfactorily answered by one solution alone. Alternative energy sources to fossil fuels and more efficient energy use need to be implemented effectively as well. Patrick Ruby there with a report on carbon trading, something that we're going to be getting a lot more used to in the decades to come. You're listening to Diffusion. Let's do another line. 
That was John Hammond with the Tom Waits song Heart Attack and Vine. You're listening to Diffusion on 2SER in Sydney, across Australia thanks to the Community Broadcasting Network, and across the world thanks to the miracle that is podcasting. In December 2006, Mr Mark Hendricks from Macquarie University wrote a paper in the Australian Geologist about the potential hazards of naturally occurring asbestos. Our reporter Darren Osborne recently spoke to Mark and began by asking him, Exactly what is asbestos? Uh, look, asbestos is just a, it's a naturally occurring substance, uh, commonly associated with a number of different rock types. Uh, the mineral itself forms very thin fibres that break apart, and uh, because they are so thin and, and, and narrow, they can penetrate fairly deep into the lung where they can do damage. Um, there's sort of three main diseases that are associated with asbestos. Uh, there's asbestosis, which typically is associated with really large doses of asbestos fibre. People sort of tend to get this disease working in you know, cement, uh, asbestos cement sheet factories or bagging asbestos. There's uh, lung cancer, 
and there's a disease called mesothelioma, which is a rare form of lung cancer. And uh, that's the uh, disease that uh, this study is sort of particularly focused on looking at. Now, the mining of asbestos and, and its manufacturing products hasn't occurred for a number of decades. Why does it continue to be a problem? Oh, look, there's, there's a long legacy uh, associated with asbestos use. So while we stopped mining, certainly in the 1980s, um, the last asbestos mine, I think, was Woods Reef in the northern part of New South Wales, uh, which closed, I think, in '83. Because of the long latency period with diseases like mesothelioma, you're sort of talking about um, getting the disease or at least getting the symptoms 20 to 40 years after uh, you were first exposed. Uh, there's, there's, there's a long period uh, down the track we're going to see uh, asbestos-related diseases coming up. Now, in your study, you're looking at naturally occurring asbestos, um, the type that can be disturbed through natural processes such erosion or through development. What areas of Australia do these deposits occur? Sure. Well, let's sort of break it up into two parts, uh, west and east. Uh, in the eastern states, asbestos is closely associated with a rock type called serpentinite and all the former asbestos mines on the east coast occur in this type of rock. And in the past, mineral explorers looking for asbestos actually sort of focused on serpentinite because they knew, as we know now, that it hosts asbestos mineralisation. Now, serpentinite is sort of a green, black, metamorphic rock that sometimes has a bit of a slippery feel to it. It's quite distinctive. It's not that common in Australia and would probably form well less than 1% of outcropping rocks, for instance, in New South Wales. Now, they, they formed long, narrow belts in the north of the state, and they were mined at Woods Reef about 100 kilometres north of Tamworth and, and Barry Eagle about 50 kilometres northwest of Grafton. They also formed sporadic outcrops around Orange and in a series of narrow belts that run between Young and Kyandra, passing through Gundagai, and some of these smaller deposits were mined last century. So in terms of New South Wales, mainly looking at rural areas, although... Uh, they do underlie uh, parts of Gundagai and Orange and, uh, and they do outcrop at the, on the beach at Port Macquarie. Now, in, uh, in Western Australia, they're associated with banded iron formations in the Hamilton Ranges and this is where uh, Whitnoom occurs. You're probably sort of well aware of, of, of Whitnoom. It's been a well-documented uh, case of, of, I guess, uh, industrial disease associated with asbestos. And uh, in South Australia, they occur with, uh, in, relate with, in association with dolomitic uh, rocks in the Adelaide Fold Belt. In the article that appears in The Australian Geologist, you mentioned that uh, there's a number of people who have died from asbestos-related uh, illnesses such as mesothelioma, uh, yet they weren't involved in, in producing or mining asbestos. Is this what's prompted the study? Yeah, partly. Um, one of the papers that we, we came across was a, a one by, um, by James Lee and Associates um, based at the University of Sydney, and they looked at mesothelioma cases in Australia between 1945 and 19, uh, 2000, and of the 6,000 or so cases that they looked at, around about 10%, uh, there was, for about 10% of cases, there was no demonstrated link to an industrial or commercial exposure to asbestos, and uh, one of the things we're sort of thinking about is that perhaps some of that 10% may have acquired mesothelioma from a from naturally occurring source. So what sort of data will you be looking at in this study? Well, I guess the, the project itself is trying to answer three basic questions about naturally occurring asbestos and mesothelioma risk in Australia. Uh, one, has naturally occurring asbestos caused any cases of mesothelioma? Two, what are the risks of getting mesothelioma from exposure to low levels of asbestos from natural sources? And three, which parts of the country are most at risk? Now, in order to do this, we'll be looking at uh, historical cancer registry data to see if there's any spatial association between outcrops of asbestos-bearing rocks and mesothelioma cases. Now, this is similar to the study that was done in, in the US, um, in California. Um, 
as part of this, we'll need to accurately map the distribution of asbestos-bearing rocks across the country. Most of this has already been done. Our geological surveys in the states have got uh, uh, fairly well established the boundaries of these rocks, but we'll be going out and just sort of checking a few few areas just to make sure. Um, the other thing we plan to do is to undertake some air quality sampling to see what levels of asbestos fibre present in some of these areas and to see what sort of types of fibre present because the type of fibre is sort of important in sort of determining whether people are at risk of mesothelia or not. Um, the, the amphibol varieties are, are much more closely associated with mesothelioma whereas white asbestos is more commonly associated with asbestosis. So that's, that's sort of the, the, the main things we'll be doing. And what do you hope will be the outcomes of this study? It'd be great to find that um, that, that that there is no link, um, because you know the, the, the upshot. You know, if we do find a link between naturally occurring outcrops and uh, and mesothelioma, it means that uh, we may be requiring some changes in the way that uh, we we operate in areas of naturally occurring asbestos. Um, what one of the main uh, uh, issues here is is that, and one of the things that's, that that's important to remember is that asbestos in these rocks generally occurs in low percentages. It's not always present. And they are only risk if, if disturbed to the extent that asbestos in the rock is released where it can be inhaled. They aren't a risk if they're left alone. Um, I guess they're, I've described them before as sort of as a geological equivalent to snakes, which is appropriate given the name serpentinite. Um, they're pretty to look at, but, but don't disturb them. Which actually leads me to my final question. What should people do if they come across asbestos or some of these minerals that might contain asbestos on their property? Yeah, the best thing to do is, is essentially to leave it alone. Um, if... Um, this has come up before in terms of development. Um, if, if they're planning on, on, on developing an area that they are aware that has got uh, serpentinite or asbestos-bearing rocks, so we will need to sort of take uh, necessary precautions such as uh, dust suppression methods, uh, may pay to get in touch with their local council just to see if they've got any recommendations or uh, local uh, work cover uh, authorities. Sounds like good advice. Thanks very much for joining us, Mark. Thank you, Darren. If you want more information about naturally occurring asbestos, uh, visit the Geological Society of Australia's website at www.gsa.org.au. Mark will also be setting up a website as part of his study, which he plans on commencing in the second week of February. That was Darren Osborne speaking to Mark Hendricks. Well, that's all the time we've got for another week of Diffusion, the half-hour science show on 2SER here in Sydney, across Australia on the Community Broadcasting Network and around the world if you're listening to us on a podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, if you've got a question or a comment or you just like what you're listening to, drop us a line at diffusion at 2SER.com. Well, in the studio with me tonight, you've been listening to Emily Fern. Hi. Say hi. Say bye, Emily. Uh, <laughs> Jack Cotterell. Adios. Celine Steinfeld. See ya. And Patrick Ruby. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. I'm Chris Stewart. Join us again in a week's time for another half hour of your favourite science show, Diffusion. But unfortunately, we've got to say goodbye for now. So, bye for now.